Chapter Eight of What Katie Did Next. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Ann. What Katie Did Next. Chapter Eight. On the track of Ulysses. We are going to follow the track of Ulysses," said Katie, with her eyes fixed on the little traveling map in her guidebook. "Do you realize that, Polly dear? He and his companions sailed these very seas before us, and we shall see the sights they saw: Circe's Cape and the Isles of the Cyrenes, and Polyphemus himself, perhaps. Who knows?" The Marco Polo had just cast off her moorings and was slowly steaming out of the crowded port of Genoa into the heart of a still rosy sunset. The water was perfectly smooth; no motion could be felt but the engine's throb. The trembling foam of the long wake showed glancing points of phosphorescence here and there, while low on the eastern sky a great silver planet burned like a signal lamp. Polyphemus was a horrible giant. I read about him once, and I don't want to see him," observed Amy, from her safe, protected perch in her mother's lap. He may not be so bad now as he was in those old times. Some missionary may have come across him and converted him. If he were good, you wouldn't mind his being big, would you? Suggested Katie. No, replied Amy doubtfully. But it would take a great lot of missionaries to make him good, I should think. One all alone would be afraid to speak to him. We shan't really see him, shall we? I don't believe we shall. And if we stuff cotton in our ears and look the other way, we need not hear the sirens sing," said Katie, who was in the highest spirits. "And oh, Polly dear, there is one delightful thing I forgot to tell you about. The captain says he shall stay in Leghorn all day tomorrow, taking on freight, and we shall have plenty of time to run up to Pisa and see the cathedral and the leaning tower and everything else. Now, that is something Ulysses didn't do. I am so glad I didn't die of measles when I was little, as Rose Red used to say." She gave her book a toss into the air as she spoke, and caught it again as it fell, very much as the Katy Carr of twelve years ago might have done. "What a child you are," said Mrs. Ashe approvingly. "You never seem out of sorts or tired of things." "Out of sorts? I should think not. And pray, why should I be, Polly dear?" Katy had taken to calling her friend Polly dear of late, a trick picked up half unconsciously from Lieutenant Ned. Mrs. Ashe liked it. It was sisterly and intimate, she said, and made her feel nearer Katy's age. Does the tower really lean? Questioned Amy. Far over, I mean, so that we can see it. We shall know tomorrow, replied Katy. If it doesn't, I shall lose all my confidence in human nature. Katy's confidence in human nature was not doomed to be impaired. There stood the famous tower when they reached the Palace del Duomo in Pisa next morning, looking all aslant. Exactly as it does in the pictures and alabaster models, and seeming as if in another moment it must topple over from its own weight upon their heads, Mrs. Ashe declared that it was so unnatural that it made her flesh creep, and when she was coaxed up the winding staircase to the top, she turned so giddy that they were all thankful to get her safely down to firm ground again. She turned her back upon the tower as they crossed the grassy space to the majestic old cathedral. Saying that if she thought about it any more, she should become a disbeliever in the attraction of gravitation, which she had always been told all respectable people must believe in. The guide showed them the lamp swinging by a long, slender chain before which Galileo is said to have sat and pondered while he worked out his theory of the pendulum. This lamp seemed a sort of own cousin 
to the attraction of gravitation, and they gazed upon it with respect. Then they went to the baptistry to see Niccolo Pisano's magnificent pulpit of creamy marble, a mass of sculpture supported on the backs of lions, and the equally lovely font, and to admire the extraordinary sound which their guide evoked from a mysterious echo, with which he seemed to be on intimate terms, for he made it say whatever he would and almost answer back. It was in coming out of the baptistry that they met with an adventure which Amy could never quite forget. Pisa is the mendicant city of Italy, and her streets are infested with a band of religious beggars who call themselves the Brethren of the Order of Mercy. They wear loose black gowns, sandals laced over their bare feet, and black cambric masks with holes, through which their eyes glare awfully, and they carry tin cups for the reception of offerings, which they thrust into the faces of all strangers visiting the city, whom they look upon as their lawful prey. As our party emerged from the baptistry, two of these brethren espied them, and like great human bats came swooping down upon them with long strides, their black garments flying in the wind, their eyes rolling strangely behind their masks, and brandishing their alms cups, which had pour le paveur lettered upon them, and gave forth a clapping sound like a watchman's rattle. There was something terrible in their appearance, and the rushing speed of their movements. Amy screamed and ran behind her mother, who visibly shrank. Katie stood her ground, but the bat-winged fiends in Doré's illustrations to Dante occurred to her, and her fingers trembled as she dropped some money in the cups. Even medicant friars are human. Katie ceased to tremble, as she observed that one of them, as he retreated, walked backward for some distance in order to gaze longer at Mrs. Ashe, whose cheeks were flushed with bright pink, and who was looking particularly handsome. She began to laugh instead, and Mrs. Ashe laughed too, but Amy could not get over the impression of having been attacked by demons, and often afterwards recurred with a shudder to the time when those awful black things flew at her and she hid behind Mama. The ghastly pictures of the triumph of death, which were presently exhibited to them, on the walls of the Campo Santo, did not tend to reassure her, and it was with quite a pale, scared little face that she walked toward the hotel where they were to have lunch, and she held fast to Katie's hand. Their way led them through a narrow street inhabited by the poorer classes, a dusty street with high, shabby buildings on either side, and wide doorways giving glimpses of interior courtyards, where empty hogsheads and barrels and rusty cauldrons lay, and great wooden trays of macaroni were spread out in the sun to dry. Some of the macaroni was gray, some white, some yellow. None of it looked at all desirable to eat, as it lay exposed to the dust, with long lines of ill-washed clothes flapping above on wires stretched from one house to another. As is usual in poor streets, there were swarms of children, and the appearance of little Amy, with her long bright hair falling over her shoulders, and Mabel, clasped in her arms, created a great sensation. The children in the street shouted and exclaimed, and other children within the houses heard the sounds and came trooping out, while mothers and older sisters peeped from the doorways. The very air seemed full of eager faces and little brown and curly heads bobbing up and down with excitement, and black eyes all fixed upon big, beautiful Mabel, who, with her thick wig of flaxen hair, her blue velvet dress and jacket, feathered hat, and little muff, seemed to them like some strange, small marvel from another world. They could not decide whether she was a living child or a make-believe one, and they dared not come near enough to find out, so they clustered at a little distance, 
pointed with their fingers, and whispered and giggled, while Amy, much pleased with the admiration shown for her darling, lifted Mabel up to view. At last one droll little girl with a white cap on her round head seemed to make up her mind, and darting indoors, returned with her doll, a poor little image of wood, its only garment a coarse shirt of red cotton. This she held out for Amy to see. Amy smiled for the first time since her encounter with the bat-like friars, and Katie, taking Mabel from her, made signs that the two dolls should kiss each other. But though the little Italian screamed with laughter at the idea of a baccio between two dolls, she would by no means allow it, and hid her treasure behind her back, blushing and giggling, and saying something very fast which none of them understood, while she waved two fingers at them with a curious gesture. "'I do believe she is afraid Mabel will cast the evil eye on her doll,' said Katie, at last, with a sudden understanding as to what this pantomime meant. "'Why, you silly thing!' cried the outraged Amy. "'Do you suppose for one moment that my child could hurt your dirty old dolly? You ought to be glad to have her noticed at all by anybody that's clean.' The sound of the foreign tongue completed the discomfiture of the little Italian. With a shriek she fled, and all the other children after her, pausing at a distance to look back at the alarming creatures who didn't speak the familiar language. Katie, wishing to leave a pleasant impression, made Mabel kiss her waxen fingers toward them. This sent the children off into another fit of laughter and chatter, and they followed our friends for quite a distance as they proceeded on their way to the hotel. All that night, over a sea as smooth as glass, the Marco Polo slipped along the coasts, past which the ships of Ulysses sailed in those old legendary days, which wear so charmed a light to our modern eyes. Katie roused at three in the morning, and, looking from her cabin window, had a glimpse of an island, which her map showed her must be Elba, where that war-eagle Napoleon was chained for a while. Then she fell asleep again, and when she roused in full daylight, the steamer was off the coast of Ostia, and nearing the mouth of the Tiber. Dreamy mountain shapes rose beyond the faraway Campania, and every curve and indentation of the coast bore a name which recalled some interesting thing. About eleven, a dim-drawn bubble appeared on the horizon, which the captain assured them was the dome of St. Peter's, nearly thirty miles distant. This was one of the moments which Clover had been fond of speculating about, and Katie, contrasting the real with the imaginary moment, could not help smiling. Neither she nor Clover had ever supposed that her first glimpse of the great dome was to be so little impressive. On and on they went, till the air-hung bubble disappeared, and Amy, grown very tired of scenery, with which she had no associations, and grown-up raptures which she did not comprehend, squeezed herself into the end of the long wooden settee on which Katie sat, and began to beg for another story concerning Violet and Emma. "'Just a little tiny chapter, you know, Miss Katie, about what they did on New Year's Day or something. It's so dull to keep sailing and sailing all day and have nothing to do. And it's ever so long since you told me anything about them. Really and truly it is.' Now Violet and Emma, if the truth is to be told, had grown to be the bane of Katie's existence. She had rung the changes on their uneventful adventures, and racked her brains to invent more and more details— till her imagination felt like a dry sponge from which every possible drop of moisture had been squeezed. Amy was insatiable. Her interest in the tale never flagged, and when her exhausted friend explained that she really could not think of another word to say on the subject, she would turn the tables by asking, "'Then, Miss Katie, mayn't I tell you a chapter?' 
whereupon she would proceed somewhat in this fashion. It was the day before Christmas. No, we won't have it the day before Christmas. It shall be three days before Thanksgiving. Violet and Emma got up in the morning, and, well, they didn't do anything in particular that day. They just had their breakfasts and dinners and played and studied a little, and went to bed early, you know. And the next morning, well, there didn't much happen that day either. They just had their breakfasts and dinners and played. Listening to Amy's stories was so much worse than telling them to her, that Katie, in self-defense, was driven to recommence her narrations. But she had grown to hate Violent and Emma with a deadly hatred. So when Amy made this appeal on the steamer's deck, a sudden resolution took possession of her, and she decided to put an end to those dreadful children once for all. "'Yes, Amy,' she said, "'I will tell you one more story about Violent and Emma.' but this is positively the last. So Amy cuddled close to her friend, and listened with rapt attention as Katie told how on a certain day, just before the new year, Violet and Emma started by themselves in a little sleigh drawn by a pony, to carry to a poor woman who lived in a lonely house, high up on a mountain slope, a basket containing a turkey, a mold of cranberry jelly, a bunch of celery, and a mince pie. They were so pleased at having all these nice things to take to poor widow Simpson, and in thinking how glad she would be to see them, proceeded the naughty Katie, that they never noticed how black the sky was getting to be, or how the wind howled through the bare boughs of the trees. They had to go slowly, for the road was uphill all the way, and it was hard work for the poor pony. But he was a stout little fellow, and tugged away up the slippery track, and Violet and Emma talked and laughed and never thought what was going to happen. Just halfway up the mountain there was a rocky cliff which overhung the road, and on this cliff grew an enormous hemlock tree. The branches were loaded with snow, which made them much heavier than usual. Just as the sleigh passed slowly underneath the cliff, a violent blast of wind blew up from the ravine, struck the hemlock, and tore it out of the ground, roots and all. It fell directly across the sleigh, and Violet and Emma and the pony and the basket with the turkeys and all the other things in it were all crushed, as flat as pancakes. Well, said Amy, as Katie stopped, go on, what happened then? Nothing happened then, replied Katie, in a tone of awful solemnity. Nothing could happen. Violet and Emma were dead. The pony was dead. The things in the basket were broken all to little bits, and a great snowstorm began and covered them up, and no one knew where they were or what had become of them, till the snow melted in the spring. With a loud shriek, Amy jumped up from the bench. No, 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 she cried. They aren't dead. I won't let them be dead. Then she burst into tears, ran down the stairs, locked herself into her mother's stateroom, and did not appear again for several hours. Katie laughed heartily at first over this outburst, but presently she began to repent and to think that she had treated her pet unkindly. She went down and knocked at the stateroom door, but Amy would not answer. She called her softly through the keyhole, and coaxed and pleaded, but it was all in vain. Amy remained invisible till late in the afternoon, and when she finally crept up again to the deck, her eyes were red with crying, and her little face as pale and miserable as if she had been attending the funeral of her dearest friend. Katie's heart smote her. "'Come here, my darling,' she said, holding out her hand. "'Come and sit in my lap and forgive me. Violet and Emma shall not be dead.' They shall go on living, since you care so much for them, and I will tell stories about them to the end of the chapter. No, 
said Amy, shaking her head mournfully. You can't. They're dead, and they won't come to life again ever. It's all over, and I'm so sorry. All Katie's apologies and efforts to resuscitate the story were useless. Violet and Emma were dead to Amy's imagination, and she could not make herself believe in them any more. She was too woebegone to care for the fables of Circe and her swine, which Katie told as they rounded the magnificent Cape Circello, and the isles where the sirens used to sing appealed to her in vain. The sun set, the stars came out, and under the beams of their countless lamps and beckonings of a slender new moon, the Marco Polo sailed into the Bay of Naples, past Vesuvius, whose dusky curl of smoke could be seen outlined against the luminous sky, and brought her passengers to their landing place. They woke next morning to a summer atmosphere full of yellow sunshine and true July warmth. Flower vendors stood on every corner, and pursued each newcomer with their fragrant wares. Katie could not stop exclaiming over the cheapness of the flowers, which were thrust in at the carriage windows as they drove slowly up and down the streets. They were tied into flat nosegays, whose center was a white camellia, encircled with concentric rows of pink tea rosebuds, ring after ring, till the whole was the size of an ordinary milk pan, all to be had for the sum of ten cents. But after they had bought two or three of these enormous bouquets, and had discovered that not a single rose boasted an inch of stem, and that all were pierced with long wires through their very hearts, she ceased to care for them. I would rather have one souvenir, or General Jacques Minot, with a long stem and plenty of leaves, than a dozen of these stiff platters of bouquets, Katie told Mrs. Ashe. But when they drove beyond the city gates, and the coachman came to anchor beneath walls overhung with the same roses, she found that she might stand on the seat and pull down as many branches of the lovely flowers as she desired, and gather wallflowers for herself out of the clefts in the masonry. She was entirely satisfied. This is the Italy of my dreams, she said. With all its beauty, there was an underlying sense of danger about Naples, which interfered with their enjoyment of it. Evil smells came in at the windows, or confronted them as they went about the city. There seemed something deadly in the air. Whispered reports met their ears of cases of fever, which the landlords of the hotels were doing their best to hush up. An American gentleman was said to be lying very ill at one house. A lady had died the week before at another. Mrs. Ashe grew nervous. We will just take a rapid look at a few of the principal things, she told Katie, and then get away as fast as we can. Amy is so on my mind that I have no peace of my life. I keep feeling her pulse and imagining that she does not look right. And though I know it is all my fancy, I am impatient to be off. You won't mind, will you, Katie? After that, everything they did was done in a hurry. Katie felt as if she were being driven about by a cyclone as they rushed from one site to another, filling up all the chinks between with shopping, which was irresistible, where everything was so pretty and so wonderfully cheap. She herself purchased a tortoise-shell fan and a chain for Rose Red, and had her monogram carved upon it, a coral locket for Elsie, some studs for Dory, and for her father a small, beautiful vase of bronze, copied from one of the Pompeian antiques. How charming it is to have money to spend in such a place as this, she said to herself with a sigh of satisfaction as she surveyed these delightful buyings. I only wish I could get ten times as many things and take them to ten times as many people. Papa was so wise about it. I can't think how it is that he always knows beforehand exactly how people are going to feel and what they will want. Mrs. Ashe also bought a great many things for herself and Amy, 
and to take home his presents, and it was all very pleasant and satisfactory except for the subtle sense of danger from which they could not escape, and which made them glad to go. See Naples and die, says the old adage, and the saying has proved sadly true in the case of many an American traveller. Besides the talk of fever, there was also a good deal of gossip about brigands going about, as is generally the case in Naples and its vicinity. Something was said to have happened to a party on one of the heights above Sorrento, and though nobody knew exactly what the something was, or was willing to vouch for the story, Mrs. Ashe and Katie felt a good deal of trepidation as they entered the carriage which was to take them to the neighborhood where the mysterious something had occurred. The drive between Castellamara and Sorrento is in reality as safe as it is between Boston and Brookline, but as our party did not know this fact till afterwards, it did them no good. It is also one of the most beautiful drives in the world, following the windings of the exquisite coast mile after mile, in long lengths of perfectly made road, carved on the face of sharp cliffs, with groves of oranges and lemons and olive orchards above, and the Bay of Naples beneath, stretching away like a solid sheet of lapis lazuli, and gemmed with islands of the most picturesque form. It is a pity that so much beauty should have been wasted on Mrs. Ashe and Katie, but they were too frightened to half enjoy it. Their carriage was driven by a shaggy young savage, who looked quite wild enough to be abandoned himself. He cracked his whip loudly as they rolled along, and every now and then gave a long shrill whistle. Mrs. Ashe was sure that these were signals to his band, who were lurking somewhere on the olive-hung hillsides. She thought she detected him once or twice making signs to certain questionable-looking characters as they passed, and she fancied that the people they met gazed at them with an air of commiseration, as upon victims who were being carried to execution. Her fears affected Katie, so, though they talked and laughed and made jokes to amuse Amy, who must not be scared or led to suppose that anything was amiss, and to the outward view seemed a very merry party, they were privately quaking in their shoes all the way, and enjoying a deal of highly superfluous misery. And, after all, they reached Sorrento in perfect safety, and the driver, who looked so dangerous, turned out to be a respectable young man enough, with a wife and family to support, who considered a plateful of macaroni and a glass of sour red wine as the height of luxury, and was grateful for a small gratuity of thirty cents or so, which would enable him to purchase these dainties. Mrs. Ashe had a very bad headache the next day, to pay for her fright, but she and Katie agreed that they had been very foolish, and resolved to pay no more attention to unaccredited rumors, or allow them to spoil their enjoyment, which was a sensible resolution to make. Their hotel was perched directly over the sea. From the balcony of their sitting-room they looked down a sheer cliff, some sixty feet high, into the water. Their bedrooms opened on a garden of roses, with an orange grove beyond. Not far from them was the great gorge which cuts the little town of Sorrento almost in two, and whose seaward end makes the harbor of the place. Katie was never tired of peering down into this strange and beautiful cleft, whose sides, two hundred feet in depth, are hung with vines and trailing growths of all sorts, and seem all a-tremble with the fairy fronds of maidenhair ferns growing out of every chink and crevice. She and Amy took walks along the coast toward Massa, to look off at the lovely island shapes in the bay, and to admire the great clumps of cactus and Spanish bayonet which grew by the roadside and they always came back loaded with orange flowers, which could be picked as freely as apple blossoms from New England orchards in the spring. The oranges themselves at that time of year were very sour, but they answered well for a romantic date, from an orange grove, as if they had been in the sweetest in the world. 
they made two different excursions to Pompeii, which is within easy distance of Sorrento. They scrambled on donkeys over the hills, and had glimpses of the faraway Calabrian shore, of the natural arch, and the temples of Pestum, shining in the sun many miles distant. On Katie's birthday, which fell toward the end of January, Mrs. Ashe let her have her choice of a treat, and she elected to go to the Isle of Capri, which none of them had seen. It turned out a perfect day, with sea and wind exactly right for the sail, and to allow of getting into the famous blue grotto, which can only be entered under particular conditions of tide and weather. And they climbed the great cliff-rise at the island's end, and saw the ruins of the villa built by the wicked emperor Tiberius, and the awful place known as his Leap, down which, it is said, he made his victims throw themselves. And they lunched at a hotel which bore his name, and just at sunset pushed off again for the row home over the charmed sea. This return voyage was almost the pleasantest thing of all the day. The water was smooth, and the moon at its full. It was larger and more brilliant than the American moons are, and seemed to possess an actual warmth and color. The boatmen timed their oar-strokes to the cadence of Neapolitan barcaroles and folk-songs, full of rhythmic movement, which seemed caught from the pulsing tides. And when at last the bow grated on the sands of the Sorrento landing-place, Katie drew a long, regretful breath, and declared that this was her best birthday gift of all, better than Amy's flowers or the pretty tortoise-shell locket that Mrs. Ashe had given her, better even than the letter from home, which, timed by happy accident, had arrived by the morning's post to make a bright opening for the day. All pleasant things must come to an end. Katie, said Mrs. Ashe one afternoon in early February, I heard some ladies talking just now in the salon, and they said that Rome is filling up very fast. The carnival begins in less than two weeks, and everybody wants to be there then. If we don't make haste, we shall not be able to get any rooms. Oh, dear, said Katie. It is very trying not to be able to be in two places at once. I want to see Rome dreadfully, and yet I cannot bear to leave Sorrento. We've been very happy here, haven't we? So they took up their wandering staves again and departed for Rome, like the Apostle, not knowing what should befall them there. End of chapter 8